Well, this is Alex Grant. Today's episode is brought to you by my new comic, Journey into Mexico, with Latin American artist Sebastián Guidobono, following the adventures of young T-Hax Tabaris, who wields the power of... El Fuego! During a very politically hot time in 1830s Mexico. Available in both English and Spanish on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kindle, Comixology, and other book outlets such as IndiePlanet.com. Cheers, and let's get started. This is Neil Adams that yeah. you're listening to, you, ladies and gentlemen. Who's that? Everybody knows that. <laughs> No, I, I'm pretty recognizable. Oh, yes, you are very recognizable. Neil, I want to ask you more about when you first got out of the School of Industrial Arts. Is that where you graduated from? Very good. Yes. You've done a little research. Yes. I think one of the rumors out there is that the first panel of yours that was published was in Adventures of the Fly 4. There was a transformative box of Tommy turning into the fly. Was that your piece? It was drawn originally by Jack Kirby, and they liked mine better as a sample, and they cut it out of my page with a razor and then glued it over Jack Kirby's page, Jack Kirby's panel. And they paid me for a third of a page, about $12.50. So you did get paid for that panel then? Yeah, yeah, straight up. Guys, those guys at Archie. So then, and after that, you assisted Howard Nostrand for, was it Bat Masterson? Is that, was that the strip? Bat Masterson, the, uh, based on the television series. Yeah, yeah. How was working with Howard Nostrand? Howard Nostrand had, used to work for a studio called Alexander Chait Studios, which was an advertising agency, I mean studio, and they had people like Bob Peak and a lot of other people there. And then they sort of discovered, which you can't actually say, but that whether or not the people who ran this, the agency were taking maybe a little bit more money than they should. Anyway, the artists kind of blew up, and they all left all at the same time. And Chait Studios just went bye-bye. And all the artists split up. And the question was, where are they going to go? So four guys went to an apartment on, I think, 50th Street and rented this apartment and set up studio there. They would be partners. So one of them was Howard Nostrand. One of them was Elmer Wexler. And then there were two retouch guys, photo retouch. What was great about that was I got to go into a studio with two retouch guys, Elmer Wexler and Howard Nostrand, each of which had different skills. So here I am just turning 18, and I'm in a studio with four professional artists. All Each one had different skills, so it was like the greatest thing in the world. And then after that, you did Ben Casey. It was a syndicated TV show at the time? Or? Not after that. I had about 14 decades between that and Ben Casey. It seemed like only a couple of years, but it was... It was, it was, I learned a lot. I mean, first of all, I only did Bat Masterson for three and a half months, even though it seemed like an eternity because I, I worked every day very, very hard. But Howard taught me a lot about commercial art and introduced me to people along the way that I could go to with my freelance portfolio and get work. I also got advice from Elmer Wexler, who basically was a ex-Marine, very hard-knuckled guy and didn't take any shit from anybody. And was the opposite of Howard Nostrand. So Elmer taught me how to be a professional. The retouch guys taught me how to have a sense of humor because they, had, they were Spanish. One guy was Spanish, and he would walk around the studio saying, uh, singing the song, Besame Mucho, except he sang it, Besame Curro. That's great. That's funny. Anyways. So I was thrown into a really great bunch of guys. From there, I thought I would, I would aim high and I would go to the place that Elmer Wexler worked at 
which not worked at, did work for uh, Johnstone and Cushing. Johnstone and Cushing did advertising art for Boys Life magazine, the newspapers, and whatever. They also paid about four to six times as much as the comic book company. So here I was, still 18 years old, going to Johnstone and Cushing, proving myself at Johnstone and Cushing, now making more than any comic book artist in the world, practically, or certainly in America. So I would get 200 or $400 a page, and they got 40 or $50 a page. I could support a family, I could, and, I, and I did have a family. But I was very competitive. And being competitive, I really got good fast. And, in, and because, because I was competitive and because I was pretty smart, I knew how to lay things out and I knew how to structure things. I knew how to write. I know how to put words together. So they had me writing and designing and drawing for everybody else. So I became, in effect, top dog. So I did that for several years for Boyce Life magazine and for advertising for Chip Martin College Reporter, which was for the telephone company. I did it for a a rifle company, Savage Rifles. I did did ads for Tintex dye air conditioners and just so much, really so much stuff. That it's a, it was a career. I also did outside of Johnson and Cushing some illustration work for the newspapers and for color. And I also met a guy that I did movie posters for. Here I am, 18 years old, going on 19, doing movie posters and illustration work. And whatever came along, I got to do. So I didn't actually do comic books until I did this indicated strip for three and a half years. Then I fell backward into comic books. Right. So it's, my, tr- my travel to comic books is a backward, back-ass travel into a, a medium that I thought was, at that time, inferior to all other mediums. So you brought a lot of experience, advertising, design, strips, and then your training. Right. And illustration. Painter. I was a painter and illustrator, so that when I came to comic books, they thought I fell from the sky. They had no idea, who was this guy? How, come, how can he do all this stuff? And I, I mean, I, I was also, I also started off as a Bigfoot guy. Bigfoot guy is a guy who, well, okay. We have in the business a thing called Bigfoot and Littlefoot. Bigfoot is cartooning, you know, because little you have little characters with big feet and big hands. Littlefoot is superheroes. They have you know big giant bodies and little tiny feet. Haven't you noticed that? And I, I think Alex Toth mentioned that all the time. I always think of him as soon as I hear the Bigfoot, Littlefoot, Space Ghost with little tiny feet. That's true, especially in the 90s. The feet got really small in the 90s. Pretty damn small now. You look at Jim Lee or all those guys, it's got some little tiny feet down there. Sometimes you don't even see those feet. They're hidden in the mist. (laughs) Okay, so after the Ben Casey strip, and now it's around 1967-ish or so, basically, was Carmine Infantino, did he open the door for you to come in, or were you already there? I know you were talking to Murray Boltonoff and Kaniger. Carmine Infantino didn't have the door to open. Uh, He worked at DC Comics as a freelancer. What he was trying to do at the time that I showed up was that he was trying to become an art director for DC or Marvel. And he was playing each one against each other. So when I came in, I I, I had nothing to do with Carmine. He was just that guy sitting in the corner, the bald guy with the cigars, who looked like Edward G. Robinson, only big. I think he's his illegitimate son. (laughs) Okay, interesting. Just looked like him. (laughs) <laughs> anyway, so I first went to Bob Kaniger, who did the war stories. 
And that's how I got into DC Comics. I went from uh, uh, Creepy Uri and Vampirella over at Warren, where I worked too hard for doing a story, to uh, Bob Kaniger. But Carmen Infantino saw the advantage of taking credit for having discovered me. Now, it's a little odd to, to use the word discover since I had had a syndicated strip. I did advertising. I did all this other stuff. You had already done the, a lot of the classy stuff first. If anything, I discovered DC Comics, and to my chagrin, I liked it. I'm embarrassed to say that even though I was just there temporarily because until I could solid myself up with a strip or illustration work or advertising work, I intended to leave as soon as I could. I just sort of fell in love with it. And comic books, to me, is, in a weird way, the best medium of all. The rates were terrible. The uh, attitudes were terrible. They didn't have contracts. They were operating in the dark ages. They were, they were total assholes. But the medium is just too good to not appreciate and understand, and it's just fantastic. It's certainly its own language. It feeds all the computer games. It feeds uh, all the television shows and the movies. We are the starting point of every bit of graphics that are out there across the world, and hundreds of millions and billions of dollars are spent on on comic book on comic book movies. I mean, you can go to a, a movie and you you can say you sit there and say, "Well, thank God it's not based on a comic book," and you'll discover it's based on it says graphic novel by so and so and so and so. It's it's amazing. It's it's like uh, how do you say it? It's a it's a pre-digested story, a pre-digested concept, which is better than somebody sitting and writing a script. It's already been digested. People like it. So your involvement in the war stories is interesting because you did turn down the Green Berets newspaper strip. It was offered to you, right? Well, it was offered to me in a, in a weird way because Elliot Kaplan had the right to do it. And he was looking for an artist and I was doing Ben Casey at the time. And I couldn't really do it. Not that I wanted to do it, but I was able to recommend Joe Kubert to do it. And he did it for, I don't know, three and a half, four years. And was a very happy time for Joe because every, every comic book artist wants to have a syndicated strip. The fact that I got mine so young made me a little bit spoiled. But Joe had waited decades to get a strip, and so he got the Green Beret. Some have thought because DC had such tight control, and there's only certain numbers that when Joe went over there, it made it an opening? Or would you have just gotten in anyway? DC Comics had no control or lack of control. They were just a bunch of guys walking around banging into the walls. They had no idea what they were doing. It just suited uh, Bob Kaniger to have another Joe Kubert walk in the door and because they had lost Joe Kubert and uh, Mort Trucker had gone to Mad Magazine. So who did they have left? He had Russ Heath and Russ Andrew and Jack Gable and people, you know, very minor lights, maybe except for Russ Heath. Russ Heath is still fantastic. To have me walk in there and to be able to give him something imitating or like Joe Kubert was a big deal for him. So that made my way in. But that soon ended. Julius Schwartz got his hands on me. And that's uh, essentially what a lot of people know as far as fans is a lot of your DC work and Marvel work in the late 60s and beyond into Muhammad Ali and Superman. I'm going to have Bill ask this area of questions. We're in somewhat of a, a golden era for you because we're... we're coming into Batman, we're coming into Dead Man, we're coming into Green Lantern. I think uh, I think I created the golden era. There's nothing about when I was doing Batman or those other things that made it golden. Believe me, 
It was a crappy business. They didn't have contracts. They didn't return the original art. The golden era came as a result of what I did. It didn't come with it or in any way with it. What it was was Marvel Comics was doing better stuff than DC Comics. DC Comics needed something to combat Marvel. And what they needed, they didn't realize they, they needed. They needed to have new artists. They needed to have new writers. And even though Carmine's job was to get new artists and writers, he didn't know how to do it, nor did the editors. But I did. I hid them out and hid them in a room. And so I allowed them, I, I would feed them to the editors. So I made more of a contribution there than the drawing. Yes, the drawing was new and different, and it was more illustrative and had better anatomy and all the rest of it. But that was really only part of it. We got guys like Wrightson and guys like Len Wein and Marv Wolfman and, and uh, Howard Chaikin. And all these guys would basically hide out in my room or in the coffee room. I'd be able to introduce them to the editors. And the editors would go, why am I, gonna, why am I looking at this guy's stuff? Well, you've got backup stories. You have, you know, you're, you're doing House of Mystery. Let's do stick a guy in there. Somebody new. So they had to learn how to in, reintroduce new people. They hadn't hired anybody new in 10 years. I was the first. And the last guy that was hired was working in production. And his name was Mort Drucker. And he went over to Mad Magazine and was so glad to get out of there, he just stayed away. So it was a primitive kind of place. And even when I was doing Batman, they didn't know what... The, if I walk in and say, you know, Batman's supposed to be realistic and a creature of the night and jump out at guys and scare them, and that's like a big surprise, that's wrong. That's not the way you... Anybody knows that. Anybody. It seemed like a surprise to them. I don't know how. So then you went into socially relevant stories with Green Lantern and Green Arrow, something well, that wasn't... We had made an impact with uh, Batman, and the impact was to bring reality to it. Yes. So bringing reality to Batman inspired all the artists around me to do the same thing. It also inspired the writers to a certain extent. And it also inspired the editors. The One of the best artists at uh, DC Comics was Gil Kane. Gil Kane and I were friends, good friends. And Gil had decided, for whatever reason, to go off and do a project outside of DC Comics. That means that he no longer did Green Lantern. Well, yeah. Well, I don't know if it's that one or the other one. Black Mark or Black Mark or yeah, I think it did. So it's probably his this, and he based it on Lee Marvin as the as the yeah. It was very interesting. Anyway, so he went off and he did and he decided to do that. And you have this problem of uh, uh, who's going to do Green Lantern? Anybody that did Green Lantern after Gill, who knew a lot of anatomy, who could draw real, he was really ahead of every the uh, everybody at DC, except for say Joe Kubert. So. Anybody that did Green Lantern really did a not very good job. It's not a criticism of a person as much as a reality. Gil was that good. So I asked Julie Schwartz if I could do Green Lantern for a couple of issues. And Julie said, no, we're going to cancel the book. No, you shouldn't cancel the book. It's Green Lantern. Well, it's not selling. Well, let me do a couple of issues. So Julie had the big idea of jumping in on this modernizing things a little bit and he was always forward thinking i mean he used to represent science fiction writers and uh yeah with Mort, the partners the teenage partners of uh, ray bradbury and a bunch of guys anyway so he came up with the idea of putting uh, green lantern and green arrow together we had made a big hit with green arrow in brave and bold and so he put denny together with me and really came up with a new storyline, and that was to, to ha pit these characters against one another. So 
Now it became, what are we going to do with this? Well, since Danny O'Neill was a reporter, he was more interested in reality. Julie Schwartz, you know, if people say, you know, relevant comic books, it, it, it started the era of relevant comic books. Nobody really was concerned about doing relevant comic books. We were interested in doing real comic books and interesting comic books and, and adding things to it. It's the fact that Denny O'Neill was a radical Irish liberal, put him in a position to vent his spleen on Green Lantern and Green Arrow and, and place these guys at opposite ends of the political spectrum. Well, they really weren't. They were really on the same end. They were just different, not unlike Denny O'Neill and myself. You could call me Green Lantern. You could call him Green Arrow. That's great. In a way. Yeah. In a way. I'd never thought about that, but it's absolutely true. In many ways, it is. I'm the. I'm not the guy that goes. I believe in, you know, all uh, all the proper institutions and everything else, and I prefer to work through the institutions. And I make changes without marching in the streets. Danny marches in the streets and yells and carries signs and stuff like that. That doesn't mean that I'm not. I don't agree with him it simply means i would prefer to make the change rather than yell about it so there's the yellers and then there's the doers i'm the doer so I, now it didn't occur to us at the time that that was the case but it sort of was and maybe that's why it made it good now everybody in the field said oh these guys are preaching it's all bullshit but as much as they said it in their hearts no that's not how they felt they could see the reality of what we were doing and that it was a good idea, good direction. And you can tell it's basically colored everything in comic books since then. Things have gotten more real. How did sales uh, progress after you started doing that book? Well, if, if you're doing a historical uh, documentation on the sales, then you would actually have to know what sales are all about and uh, what is wrong with uh, sales in the, in the newsstand market. And you don't. And the... Uh, uh, the, there's no way to equate the sales of something that's good with the actual selling and the, re, and the sales results because something else was going on. And that led to the direct sales market. So there's a very deep, solid core of misinformation that goes into the, the, the concept of understanding the sale of uh, comic books. And because most good comic books didn't sell well. And also what some of the fans might not know is that Back then, a distributor could actually keep some of them and then claim that they weren't sold and then sell it on the side. And so a lot of things like that were going on, too, I think. They didn't keep them. They sold them to teenagers who would come with their father's station wagons and pick up Penthouse Magazine, Playboy Magazine, Conan, Green Lantern, Green Arrow, Batman, Swamp Thing. They would pick the best stuff and they, because they were fans. Well, when you're a fan, you know more what your audience is going to buy. So you know what to buy from the local distributor. There were 410 distributors back in those days all around the country. So you had 410 opportunities for some guy in a town to go and take his father's station wagon and buy the stuff off the back of the distributor. And the, and the distributors and the publishers had, had instituted a concept, affidavit returns. Affidavit returns assumes the honesty of all parties, which is stupid. I mean, I can't even imagine contemplating such an act. Before that, they did they would strip the titles off a comic book, wrap them in a rubber band, and send them back to the publisher. Now they were having the distributor sign a piece of paper that he destroyed so many comic books. What could be stupider than that? So the publishers were getting lower and lower sales, 
comic books were supposedly being destroyed. And all over the country, teenagers and uh, young adults were buying comic books, selling them to their friends for not 25 cents, but for a buck fifty, two dollars dollars $5. And they were the beginning of the direct sales market. All those guys that, you know, dress regular and act regular, they're all full of crap. And they're all basically a bunch of a den of thieves. And that's how our business started. And you know what? Lots of businesses started with a den of thieves. It's just the way it is. So well, how would you contrast Green Lantern, Green Arrow with Steve Ditko's Hawk and Dove? It's similar but different. Golly, I would never think of, a, of that as a contrast. Hawk was a warmonger and Dove was a peacenik. Green Lantern, Green Arrow, for example, was not a peacenik. He was actually a radical liberal that also believed in nonviolence. And Green Lantern believed in nonviolence, but through authority. That's the only difference. I mean, yeah, it's very... I mean, we I lived through the Hawk and Dove time, and it was a very, very different time. So now, fast forward to the early 70s, and Batman is taking a darker turn right after the Batman TV series. You actually grew Batman up quite a bit because he had been taken down a peg or two to juvenile camp kind of standards and you brought it up and made it more cinematic and probably fostered the way in for movies don't you think no the batman television show was a satire it was never intended to be anything but a satire it was a comedy we we watched it to laugh and that's what we did we laughed and it was great i had a great deal of fun i mean it's sort of like going to saturday night live and doing superheroes you know it was a comedy and anybody who might have thought for one minute that it was Batman and Robin and not a satire of Batman and Robin was out of their minds. And that they thought that may be the case at DC Comics was was an indication of how deluded they were by, by the success of the television show. They should have done a Batman and Robin satire book and then a regular Batman and Robin book, but they didn't. They kind of drifted Batman toward, you know, the television show. So now you have a guy in his underwear walking around in the daytime and nobody's pointing at him saying, mommy, mommy, that kid's wearing his long underwear. It was a stupid idea. So to this character that I grew up with that was drawn by Jerry Robinson and all these other guys was not in the books anymore. So I asked, look, can I do Batman and Robin? And uh, Julie Schwartz said, no, get the hell out of my office. And so I... I presented my case in enough ways that Julie actually went and changed the way they were doing Batman and Robin relative to the licensing and everything else so that it opened it up for me to do some Batman stories, which were successful because I worked with Denny O'Neill because I was drawing more realistic Batman because the, the Batman I was drawing had real muscles. He had a cape that flowed rather than look like a log out behind him. And people say, Neil, you changed Batman. I didn't change Batman. I brought him back to what he was. Everybody wanted to see. And that's what everybody loved about Batman. Yes, they loved the satire. You got to give credit to the satire. It's funny as hell in so many ways. You know, even uh, uh, Cesar Romero playing the Joker but refusing to shave his mustache is almost hysterically funny. It's sort of, sort of like the latest uh, Justice League movie where what's-his-name gets his face pasted over and because because he doesn't have... He refuses to take off the mustache. What the hell's wrong with you, buddy? That is a funny parallel, and you're totally right. And only in D.C. does this stuff happen. Idiotic. You added a scene at the beginning where they have the 
somebody else's face. If you want to hide it, take out that scene. You know, don't say anything. I thought it was weird that they used Christopher Reeve's face. No, I'm just joking. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> so um, now when you were doing uh, Dead Man in the late 60s, and Steranko was doing Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., and you guys, I think, exploded the illustration potential of comic books. It was, seemed like it was somewhat subdued before you guys. Did you guys feed off each other? Did no. you guys vibe off no, each other at all? No, 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 no. No, and, and, uh, and the, the joke is, the, is, is that there's some kind of an implication that Jim Steranko and I are alike or we somehow made uh, the same kind of impact. We, we had, I was an illustrator who could draw comic books. I had a syndicated strip. He was a magician who loved Jack Kirby, and he was trying to idealize Jack Kirby and what he did, which he did. Okay, he never presents himself as an artist. He presents himself as an entertainer, and he does graphics, and he does these, you know, comes up with ideas and piles the ideas in and adds that Jack Kirby sensibility. You'll, you'll never see him focus on anatomy or any of that other stuff that you, that you need. His direction, it's almost like he's a different, uh, a different type of, of creature. He's a chimp and I'm a baboon. You know, we're, we're very, very yeah, different. But, 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 but at the same time, we weren't afraid to do the thing that we wanted to do. And the door was open to go ahead and do it. So it wasn't just us. I mean, there was Barry Smith. There was, there was Bernie Wrightson. There was other people doing it. Somehow we were allied together. I don't know how, and I think it's funny. I think, I think Jim probably thinks it's funny, has no idea why it happened, but it happens. You know, you can't argue with fans. They're fans. They're, they are the controller. So now let's go into the seventies and you've made a huge impact on superhero fans at this point. And, uh, in 75, you and Jerry Robinson had some roles in getting Siegel and Schuster credit and a pension. It wasn't, it wasn't me and Jerry Robinson. Jerry Robinson came in at the end and he helped me with the Cartoonist Society. It was a long drawn out bout. It was about three and a half months of battling with DC Comics. But again, it's a long story. And if you start the story, you sort of have to give the details and then the details become uh, long and involved and conversations on the phone and screaming and yelling and all the rest of that. It was a big fight. It's as if you're talking to a boxer and you're talking about a match. You know, I can talk about the match. You you may then question, well, how where did you get the stamina to have the fight? And I'm made for that. I'm made for that kind of a fight. I don't, you couldn't find a better person to do it because I'm a calm person. I don't get riled. I don't get upset. And I don't lose. I'm not the type of person that loses. If you get into a fight with me, pretty much it's going to go to the end and you're going to die. And that's just the way it's going to be. And I would not wish it on anybody else. I would not say, you know, too bad you couldn't do that. Well, no, it's not too bad because, you know, you're not, you're, you'll get high blood pressure. You'll, you know, get all bloody and stuff, but not me. That's not going to happen to me because I don't, I don't fade that way. So uh, I'm the right person. Now, your boxing analogy gives me the perfect segue to 1978 and the wonderful uh, Muhammad Ali versus Superman. A lot of people thought, what the hell and then they looked at the artwork and honestly to me it's some of your best work well, I, I think there are people who think that's the best comic book ever done 
and it was a shocker to me. I, I couldn't wait to buy it, but it just blew me away. And I, I was a fan of yours up to that point, but I became a real super fan after that. And, and some of the things you did with water, some of the things you did with shadow is just uh, never been uh, equal. You have to remember that, first of all, we lived in a bigoted country in those days. Second of all, we were fighting people in, in Asia that we shouldn't be fighting and we were killing people. Third, we had a guy who was a world champion boxer who refused to go there and refused to fight. He didn't believe in it and there was no reason he should believe in it. So we lived in a country where this kind of stuff was going on. Lots of politics was going on. But if you had any understanding of the world, you knew that Ali was a champion of the world, even though he wasn't a champion in America. So Julie Schwartz, who is your good old-fashioned New York liberal Jew, is going to be the first one to step up and say, hey, we're going to do this. So it was his idea. It was his idea, and he gave it to us to do. And I ended up writing most of it. I, in, in the end, wrote, wrote it all the way to the end and drew it. And I did it all the time knowing that people were going to love it all around the world. It was going to really express DC Comics license throughout the world because people would want to see this a real live person with a comic book superhero it's just too irresistible too wonderful so i made it authentic so if you read that book you will find boxing moves that ali did you'll find speeches that he did you'll find all kinds of stuff that's real and valid and 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 good stuff talk to muhammad ali during this period or ever have any contact no he was busy (laughs) he had his own business we didn't talk until the end and it was done and he uh, when it came out when the book came out he had won the championship for the third time so we he made a big uh we did a news conference i was there ali was there all the attention went on ali because he's the champ and they announced that, you know, they talked about the uh, third win and they talked about the release of the comic book. So that helped the comic book sales like crazy. The legendary comic book, you know, I don't I, I'm I'm it's beyond me at this point. You know, it's like, wow, that's cool. And that also coincided with the release of the Superman movie with Christopher Reeve. Did you feel that Christopher Reeve, since you knew Superman better than a lot of people at the time, anatomy-wise, did you feel Christopher Reeve was a good Superman? He was a great Superman. As far as everybody's concerned, he was the best Superman. I don't repeat things that other people don't tell me because I don't really have any opinions myself. Everybody will tell you Christopher Reeve was the best Superman. And everything about him was wonderful. Let's fast forward a little bit longer into your continuity era. And can you explain a little bit about what that was all about, why you went off and did it? And I, I think we kind of know by some of the things you said. Not, well, I, I just decided that I would do my own comic books. I mean, uh, it, it, there's there's nothing that I've done in my career that didn't advance the medium, and and I'm doing things now to advance the medium, but I it, by publishing myself it gave a certain credence to, you know, why don't you do this kind of thing? Not a fan magazine or just kind of crappy publishing, but you know, number one ace comic book people doing their own comic books like and. And soon after that, you got, or at that, during that time, or after that, you got Image. So you got a major force doing their own comic books. Well, that is the wave of the future. You know, from that you get Hellboy, from that you get all kinds of independent projects, from that you get what's going on with uh, the English guy that he's doing uh, comic books with some of the best artists, Miller, Miller, Millar, whatever, however you pronounce it. And that's no surprise. 
that's no surprise because we did continuity comic books before that it was you know it was minor artists minor comic book people or people who were unknown and managed to make their way through but it, the majors didn't quite do it it sort of started with uh with um Service. no no because he was not a major known artist that was a right. a fringe guy who jumped in same thing with Elfquest. but then you got sergio aragonas grew and uh, what's the name of the company um epic no no Grew and and Jack Kirby's uh, oh, Pacific uh, Pacific Comics. Yeah. They had a bunch of fans who could afford to pay professionals, and the professionals couldn't believe that they were actually being paid better than they were being paid by Marvel and DC. And maintain rights. Yeah, and have their own rights. And those those fans couldn't believe that they were getting Jack Kirby and Sergio Aragonas and Neil Adams. It was a big shock to them. I had to convince Sergio and Jack Kirby. Oh that this was a valid thing because they couldn't believe it. I, see. I mean, they were just so... So they call me and they say, Neil, what, what the hell is this? You know, these guys saying that I can keep my rights? That's impossible. No, no, it's not impossible. I guarantee you it's fine. So you have now a new industry, an industry where independents are creating their own product and profiting by them. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. Well, where are you now, and what are you doing now, and where are you taking the medium in the future? I disappeared for three decades. You guys don't know that. Think about it. The comic books that I did for other companies that I did interior pages ended with Superman versus Muhammad Ali. That was it. Then I disappeared. Yes, I came back as a publisher, but that was me as a publisher doing covers supporting continuity comics. So I wasn't doing comic books. I was doing advertising. I supported my family. We had a studio in New York. We build $3 million a year on average. So I have the biggest studio of any comic book artist. We had more people working for us on a regular basis, more reps going out there, except it was for advertising. Nobody knew it because nobody communicates. So all these people in advertising knew, knew that Neil Adams... And nobody in comic books, everybody in comic books thought Neil Adams died. Yeah, went off the map. So those guys doing all the advertising stuff, if they would find out that I did comic books, they would freak out and go, you you do comic books? Really? And then some little guy in the back room would go, yeah, that's Neil Adams. And And the guys who were in charge had no idea. I saw a commercial, I think, 79 or 80, and it was like a... The Nason XB, yeah, and 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 uh, we're not supposed to say this, but it was also Antonio Banderas's voice, <laughs> and that was mine, and that's what put a few million dollars in the bank. Oh, wonderful! Wow, that's wonderful to hear. So that sounds like a whole other avenue of interest for people to explore your advertising career, right there. And that, but I, I I encourage that also in artists. I mean, there's no reason why artists shouldn't work for Hollywood, shouldn't work for advertising agencies, shouldn't do they. They have a right to make a living just like everybody else. They have to think about business. They have to think about their own opportunities. They have to think about basically their bottom line and not worry about DC and Marvel. Because, you know, who gives a crap about DC and Marvel when you come right down to it? If they own the stuff and they're not sharing, to the degree that they're not sharing, we don't give a shit about them. Okay? To the degree that they share, then we care. Okay? And they do share a little bit, and we care to that extent. But if they don't care more... Basically, the business is going to be all independence, and DC and Marvel is going to disappear. That's right. 
That's their own. That's they're making their own uh, basket and they're weaving their own basket. They're going to have to live with the water that drains through. No, that's wonderful. It seems like you have that your um, confidence and balls of steel almost pushed and nudged other creators to kind of also grasp their creator rights. It seems like you're a huge force for that. Yeah, maybe. It works for me. I'm down with that. <laughs> well, listen, thank you for giving us such a long interview. It's been a true honor. Thank you so much. It's been a wonderful pleasure. A pleasure. And we'll keep watching for more Neil. Please. Oh, well, you're going to see lots more. we got a lot of plans. Take it easy, guys.